I have three daughters and I fully intend to require them to be a piece of the wait staff in a restaurant for a year's time. I mean, I would almost start giving people a little bit of a leg up in a hiring process if they've ever been a waiter or a waitress. That just builds, ingrains a customer service mentality, a sales mentality into a person. You can't get any other way. Welcome to The Profitable Table, fed by Woolco Foods the nation's first podcast devoted to the business and lifestyle of the hospitality industry. Now, here's your host, Wilco Foods CEO, Stephen Toberoff. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Profitable Table, fed by Wilco Foods. I am your host, Stephen Toberoff. And today, my guest is someone that I'm very much looking forward to speaking with on a multitude of issues. There's so much going on in the hospitality space that I want to get into, and and my guest is certainly going to clue us in on that, as well as a lot of other fascinating things. So let me just jump right into it here and welcome my guest, Neil Dudley, who is the vice president of Peterson's Natural Farms. Neil, thanks so much for taking the time to speak with me today. Stephen, it's a pleasure. It's an honor, and man, I can't wait to get to the juicy topics we have on the docket. No doubt. Now, you initially came to my attention because we at Woolco sell one of the products that Peterson's offers, which is the bacon we'll get into, but also you and I have had the opportunity to speak on a variety of issues, and I've enjoyed our conversations immensely. So before we get into sort of the subject matter, would you mind just telling us a little bit about yourself personally and and how you got involved with Peterson's after that? Absolutely. It's the one story I know exactly how to tell. (laughs) You know, I mean, (laughs) I've lived it. My story is I was born and raised in a little town in central Texas, born to a, a rancher. And I used to crawl into my parents' bedroom and lay beside my dad's side of the bed. So when he got up in the morning, he'd step on me and I could know that he wouldn't leave. I just loved that lifestyle of being a rancher's son and riding horses and working cattle and building fence and all those things. So I've always been just a part of nature, really, or livestock and raising animals. And then I got out of high school and into college was studying something and I was rodeoing in college then professionally didn't really know where I was going or what I was doing I was just kind of thinking one day I'll go back home and be a rancher and it kind of actually worked out that way so I had finished my school and went to graduate school for a little while dropped out of graduate school moved back home working on the ranch and my best friend since kindergarten had gone through another crazy kind of evolution in his life and he had been named president of peterson's natural farms if anybody wants to hear that story they could go to my podcast the cowboy perspective and listen to the cody lane episode that'll tell that whole story if you want to track that down anyways once that happened he kind of called me and said hey i just got named president of this company and i need help so i said well i'm not really doing anything but working cows and doesn't pay very good so i'll come see what we can do not that going to peterson's changed the pay much but it was getting to work with my best friend and turns out now about 20 years later we've had a lot of fun building products and working with people that have the alike mind tires one of the many great things about the brand peterson's and your sort of position in the market is that it's all natural and 
really prides itself on being back to basics and and just freshness, which is something that's attracted us to it. Now, about Peterson's, before we get into the macro issue, I know that we buy the bacon from you, but I know that your company started in 1992. What has the evolution been like in terms of what you started with, you expanded the product line, and, and how you view yourselves today in the marketplace, both on the wholesale. Why don't we focus on the perspective of restaurants and hotels and them, since that's going to be the majority of our listeners? Well, the business started raising pigs in a little town in Central Texas and raising them to a standard that at the time was called USDA Process Verified which that's evolved about 500 times since then. And now we're raising our pigs to what's called a global animal partnership, step one standard, which means basically no crates of any kind. They have a certain square footage in the gestation pens that we need to adhere to. We don't dock tails. We don't pull teeth. We wean them a little bit later in life at like 28 days instead of commercial operations or weaning them at 17 to 20 days which turns out to be really beneficial because weaning a later pig gets you a healthier pig into the nursery, which gets you a healthier pig into the finisher. Actually, there's a lot of benefits. The pig gets a little happier life. They spend a little more time with mama. And economically, you raise a healthier, more vibrant animal, which turns out to be really beneficial. Okay, so I got off on a little bit of a tangent about our fresh pork there. And it could be a little bit misleading. No, but that's because, interesting because, you know, one of the major trends that's been going on, and, and certainly it's big with our customer base in the Northeast, is people want to understand where the product is coming from, how it's raised, and all of that. So I think it's really good that you shared that information. Well, and we're a little bit of a anomaly. I guess anomaly is probably the wrong word, but we're a Texas-based company, but we raise our pigs in the Midwest, in Wisconsin and Illinois. And that's because I'd love to raise pigs in Texas. But guess what? Texas doesn't have the climate to raise pigs in. At the end of the day, like what I was thinking, I was raised by a rancher. I care deeply about the animals. To me, they're family. It's not really fair, I think, to the pigs to be raised in Texas. It's hot. They don't do well. All those different things. Now, let me ask you just before we go on, because I'm curious about this and I want to explore it a little bit is, I know as you were given the bio of yourself that you had done rodeo and that's an incredibly intense sport. How do you find, if at all, do you find that your background in rodeo has helped you in business, has instructed some of your actions or disciplines in business? And if so, you know, how? I don't know if I would attribute to the sport of rodeo, but I totally attribute it to the cowboys that raised me. My dad, his brothers, the other ranch hands, the way they taught me and what they expected of me and the way they would not tell me how to do something, they would make me figure it out, played so well. And both me and Cody, because Cody's dad was like a second dad to me. He's a rancher too. And there's just so many lessons every day being around them. I had a good friend well, one of the guys I work with at Peterson's put it like this. He's like, well, you can teach a lot of people something, but it's hard to give them those bumps and bruises that are experience. And that's what those cowboys did for me every day. They were giving me experience. 
Mm. And that's played so well in my career. That's very powerful. And I just wanted to ask you that because I'm always fascinated where people who are in business, but they have a background that is not a traditional business background. And I'm always interested in exploring how one impacts the other. So getting back to Peterson's Farms, and I appreciate you sharing with us the differentiation points. One of the subjects that's really all over the news and it's being felt and being dealt with on a daily basis in the restaurants is there's some price inflation, there's supply disruptions. There's a lot of things going on right now that are impacting the hospitality industry. I would love to hear some of your thoughts in terms of what challenges, if any, you're facing in Peterson's as we ramp up across the country, which thank God we're all very grateful for. And also, if you have any insights on a macro level as to what's impacting some of either the inflationary pressures or supply chain issues, would love your insights on that. Okay, well, I'll start with kind of Peterson's ecosystem because I understand that one the most. And I probably need the disclaimer. Any macro issue I get off talking about is got to be totally understood as my opinion. <laughs> I'm not a macroeconomist. I have a lot of feelings. Pretty much the way I do business is my gut. You know, I feel like, man, something feels a little bit off in this economy right now because prices of everything's going up, but everybody keeps buying. And that's more in construction and that kind of thing. So let me get back to your specific question. Within Peterson's, yes, we're, we're facing the, the cost of pressures. And in all fairness, Peterson's has built a brand in the retail space. That's pretty much where I know the most. Although we found, we understand totally that the restaurateurs, the food service operators, the food service distributors like Wilco are very important to our sustainability. There's volume business there. There's scenarios in which we can move our ends and pieces into that piece of the market that helps us just utilize the whole animal, all the products that we make. So we're trying to learn very quickly and you're helping me learn. Working with you guys and talking to you, I want to give you a big thank you really for just the amount of transparency and honesty that you have allowed in our relationship. Just telling me where I could get better. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. But I also would say right back to you, one of the reasons that I think we've enjoyed working with your company is you're the same way. Business to me is largely about relationships and transparency, and it's it's a collaboration. And I think when you have other people who are like-minded in that manner, it really creates great opportunities because, you know, at the end of the day, I'm doing this for a lot of different reasons, but one of them is to give the best experience possible to my customers. And in order to do that, I want to have the best products available for them in order to do that, you really have to know who you're dealing with and have those shared values. So I appreciate you acknowledging us for that. And I certainly would say the same right back at you. Oh, yeah. The customer is key, right? I mean, that customer experience has to be stellar. Mm -hmm. And if you don't have that, well, you're just losing ground to the competitor that's coming up. But I didn't mean to interrupt you, Neil. I'm sorry. Oh, I was just talking about the pressures of all things. So boxes, freight packaging materials, labels. We get an email or a letter about every two weeks from every vendor that we use alerting us of a price increase. The reality of that is the poop flows downhill. So it's just, okay, so we just have to pass that along. At the end of the day, we have to stay in business. It all ends up the consumers are going to feel higher prices in every way. And the restaurateurs, 
I have to believe are worried about that. Uh-oh, they're just now coming back into my establishment and I'm putting my high-priced products in front of them. I'm a little bit afraid it doesn't even matter because everywhere a consumer goes, the price is higher. So it's just relative to what's their experience. What do they want to spend their dollar? No, I agree with you. I mean, I think that obviously when we came back online as an economy and everything went from being off to being on, there was going to be that release of pent-up demand, which has certainly been the case. At the same time, there's other forces that are driving those cost pressures. Now, interestingly enough, and I'm sure you're more aware of this than I am, but bacon as a product has seen an enormous amount of expansion and use over, let's call it the past five to 10 years. And I think in many ways, that's been perhaps seen as much in the New York City and in other cities where people, you know, really, not that they don't take pride in their dining everywhere, but in the big cities, people are always thinking of new ways to differentiate themselves from their competitors and utilizing ingredients in creative ways. Are you seeing that as well? And do you see that as a sustainable trend? Because obviously everybody loves bacon, but some of the utilizations were things I wouldn't have thought of. What are you seeing with respect to that on your end? And what do you see for it going forward from a trend standpoint? Absolutely. I think I've built my career on that wave of bacon popularity. So I totally love the fact that that happened. And I would argue it's been going on for 15 years or so. And my reason for that is when I first came into the business, we started making bacon because we couldn't sell the bellies off the pigs. Like nobody wanted them. So we just started making bacon because, oh, oh, well, we'll try to add some value and see if we can sell a product. Next thing you know, bacon just starts picking up on this big wave of popularity that I think is still going strong. I am skeptical that it can last forever, right? I don't know that any trend really lasts forever. So I think bacon will always be a strong, useful, flavorful ingredient product that people will enjoy to eat. Will it remain as versatile or as used as versatile as it has been in the last five to 10 years, I'd probably be a little bearish on that just because I think consumers are always going to kind of drive us to a different direction than the next thing. I would say one disruptor that we're all feeling or seeing, or me particularly, is the Impossible Burger, the vegetarian wave that's kind of coming through. I feel like that's eating away a little bit at something bacon's popularity. That's a good point. I think that the plant-based items are really becoming popular and, and they're now being engineered in a way that's really meant to be an exact replica of the traditional meat items. So that will be interesting to see how it plays out. Now, another dynamic that's been very prevalent, but really acutely prevalent, in my opinion, for the last five years, has been the consumer, whether it's the at-home consumer or people in restaurants, preferring niche brands brands with a story, brands that have the wholesome limited number of ingredients to the major nationwide brands that, you know, when I was a kid, if you could buy up the shelf space at the supermarket and buy up radio ads, you had market dominance. And today with the internet and people's tastes changing, it's a different game. So my question to you is, do you feel that that trend has benefited Peterson's? And how do you navigate that as you guys scale your business? Because obviously... You guys have a story to tell, but I know you guys are very big in retail. I have no doubt you're going to be big in wholesale. How have you found that dynamic play out in terms of your ability to compete against the big names, but then also keeping that niche status for yourself? 
you must know everything that's going on in our company right now because we just talked about this earlier this morning and last week and the week before that because it is a hot topic within Peterson's. Peterson's did a really good job differentiating ourselves, our niche. We were the first person to go to retail with a no sugar included bacon or really find out that there was a demand for that out in the industry. So it's been tough. And I would say when I started, most of the brands were privately held. Now we're one of maybe two or three that are privately held anymore. The rest of them have been bought up by multinationals or VC, you know, venture capitalist guys and gals. So we're kind of one of the few that's still out here thinking we don't have the pockets, but this is my excuse. I think it's a reality, but I can only speak from one perspective because I'm not on the other side of the coin. I feel like a lot of times our marketing spend is inhibited, hindered, smaller because we're not necessarily trying to make a stock price goal. So we're not always able or willing to spend the money on influencer marketing. A million different places that you could go. Like you were talking about that ad spend that would just buy you market share. We're unable to do that. So we're totally at the mercy of our relationships and our word and our word of mouth. And that's worked well for us in retail because it just kind of was where we started. We're now building that in the food service side of the business and looking forward to just showing people our trustworthiness. You can say, look, we make great products and we will do the right thing every time. People can't know that until you do a little business with them. And yes, you mess up and you make it right. Then pretty quick, they're like, okay, cool. These cowboys from Texas aren't going to BS us. They're going to stand behind their product. And we look for those chances because the second you're able to actually show, hey, we're real people, we're going to stand behind our product. We're just not here for the buck. We're here to make you money, have a fun relationship that actually ends up in a great consumer experience. And then you can work with those people for the rest of your life. It's very well said. And, you know, when I was talking about companies like Heinz utilizing, I mean, just to give a quick story. So we have our own brand of products that we have, a proprietary brand here at Wilco called Holland and York. And we've essentially displaced Heinz tomato products from our warehouse with the exception of tabletop ketchup and a handful of customers that use the number 10 product. And I mentioned that only because... In the 70s, the 80s, and 90s, when the only way to communicate to people was either through television or radio or print, those are very expensive and there's middlemen involved. Then companies were buying shelf space in the supermarket. But I think with Holland and York, but to a much greater extent Peterson's because you guys are a really established brand outside of just one distribution line, you now can utilize social media YouTube. You'd mentioned before, and I had the honor of being on it, you know, you have a podcast, a great podcast. All of these tools are phenomenal tools that bring with them very low cost, and you can really get that message out. And people are looking for it now. And I think your story, you know, and again, I say this because we have a great relationship, but I have this with a number of different vendors. It's migrating from the at-home consumer wanting the niche brand to the white tablecloth restaurants. And I think those companies like yours that have that story and have a product that's in alignment with people's values, they're the ones that I think own the immediate future. Well, I sure hope so. You know, I think personally, 
I like the idea of knowing where my food comes from. And that's what Peterson's tries to make sure people can understand. Like, hey, we're this bacon, sausage, ham, whatever we do business on. I think your consumers appreciate that. Hey, these are products that Steve stands behind at Woolco. We can trust them. There's just so much value in that. Absolutely. And I think it always depends on the market, but the market that we're in, that's a huge cause of interest and something people are really focused on. Now, I know you started with Peterson's at the beginning in 1992 or thereabouts. I'd love to ask you some questions in terms of as the company has grown, where did you decide to allocate your focus and how was that experience for you and how did that whole process evolve? I would love to learn more about your management style or your approach to growing a business or growing a department. So how did that work in the beginning when you first joined and it was a small company and now I know you guys have a big company? Talk to me a little bit about what it was like in the beginning and how you evolved in terms of how you inserted your knowledge, insight, leadership into the organization. Sure. And I guess I'll just tell the story. Hopefully in there, the answer to the question will come. So Cody told me day one, look, if you're going to come work over here, we're going to start you out in the QA position. So I had to learn the first you know, couple of months all about HASA, all of the things it takes, programs, et cetera, to run a plant and to make sure the product you put out is safe for people to consume. So that's basically my first lesson was food safety. And I think it's a core base ingredient any leader of a food business should have. If you don't understand those things, you really don't have one of the basic nuggets of knowledge that you'll need as you go to grow. I started there then I kind of started transitioning into leading the production team, which is where I learned, I think, how to work with people. I guess early on, I thought you managed people, right? I think my philosophy now is I work with people. I have a leadership role. It's my job to help them be the best they can, grow them up to be even better employees than they believe they could be, or leaders than they may think they're capable of being. Now, that sounds real easy, but it wasn't. I had to get it wrong a bunch. People had to forgive me a bunch. I think maybe one of God's gifts to me was I'm, I feel like I'm really good at making friends and actually caring about others. So I just try to play that in every scenario. Matter of fact, we just got off a conference call where we were having some issues with a customer wanting us to go around the distributor. You know, my salespeople, well, they're incentivized to make sales. So, yeah, they want, okay, let's do it, whatever. We need to sell product. Well, no, that's not actually how we do things. We're not going to go around a distributor without the distributor knowing and everybody being in on the conversation. So I kind of try to do that same thing within our team. You know, look, the rule at Peterson's, and I stole this from Patrick Lencioni, is you have to be humble, hungry, and smart. Anybody can be on our team if they can display those three things. And I don't care if they sold John Deere tractors last year. They can come sell bacon and be a part of Peterson's. Even sell bacon is the wrong word. They can work within our team if they have those things, because they can learn quickly, they're going to be able to have vulnerable conversations within the team. And you don't have to worry about them demeaning or I think the culture and people feeling safe within your organization is so paramount because people will take your business places you can't dream of. I promise I do not think big enough. I try to think big, but I, I don't think big enough. But my people 
the people I work with day in and day out help me think so much bigger. You know, as I'm listening to you, Neil, and I, there's so much that you said that I agree with and that, you know, I want to develop. But I'm thinking, I once saw a documentary about this filmmaker, John Cassavetes, and he was a director. And what he said was, when he feels he's doing his best job, he is directing in a way where everyone that he's working with is being as creative as they can be within their own notion of creativity so that it's not a command and control thing and do it the way that he envisioned it. And I love what you said about creating a safe environment. And I also love what you said about creating an environment where people know that they're appreciated, that you make friends. You can only make friends if you're sincere and empathetic. And, you know, these traits, in addition to being so elemental and decent in what it means to be a human, from a purely business standpoint, there's probably nothing more important because once you have a business more than one person, you're relying on everybody in that team to give the best effort. And so to create the environment like you described is so, so important. And I hear you keep repeating these themes of integrity, valuing people, and I think a lot of it has to do with listening, collaborating, and it sounds much easier than it is to build in practice, believe me. Oh, yeah. I'm telling you, I screwed it up a million times. I still do. Like, I'm human. I get selfish. I get my ego, you know, kind of runs away with me at times. So all I can do when that happens is say, own it. Like, that would be my biggest piece of advice to anybody. Just own when you mess up. That's the quickest way to get past it. Yes, I did. Man, that was so stupid. I wish I wouldn't have done that. I will do better next time or try to do better. You can't really even guarantee you're never going to mess up, but you could just say, I own that. I totally understand. That was unfair. That would have hurt my feelings too. I wish I wouldn't have done that. Can we get back on track? <laughs> you know? Well, you know what's really cool as I'm listening to is obviously, at least for me, you know, when people think of cowboys and ranching and stuff, you have a lot of these images about the strong, silent type and toughness, and all of that is there and it's true and it's good. But to be tough and to be a good leader means being empathetic. It's exactly what you're describing and to speak about it the way that you are. Because, you know, I think it really starts like if, if you're in a position like myself as well, if the people that I'm working with see that I'm willing to own up and, and take responsibility for a mistake or even better, what I think is so important, I'd love to know your thoughts, is everyone that I work with, I really try to get them to understand that I am very much okay with you disagreeing with me and telling me why you think I'm wrong. Because there have been so many decisions that I made where, thank God, the person who I said to do something said to me, Steve, I hear what you're saying. I don't think we want to do that, and here's why. Nine times out of 10, or probably 95 times out of 100, I say, you know what? You're right. I didn't think about it. Let's do that. I think it's so important where people feel also comfortable to challenging. I mean, at the end of the day, we're all going to move in the same direction. But like you were saying, I don't know everything. So how much better am I going to be if people feel comfortable telling me when they see something that I might miss? That's got to be able to be vulnerable, step out, disagree with the most high person in the company, and know there's not going to be some major acts falling down. I think just fear in an organization is scares me to death. You know, it really does. I don't want anybody within Peterson's to be afraid of 
saying what they think. I completely agree with you. And I think our audience is going to get this because I've had the privilege of interviewing a number of different, you know, well-known celebrity chefs who have either won Top Chef or been on it. And so many of them say, you know what, when I was young, I was this egotistical firebrand. And the more I learned, the more I realized that that's not the way to deal with people on any level, that respect is earned. And when people respect you, you don't have to come at them in a way where you're using fear. I really share your management philosophy as well. I mean, do you feel that this is something that comes through to people through the culture? Because obviously the most important thing is when people are demonstrating the attributes they want daily, or are these things that you're constantly making it a point to communicate that are part of what you do on a weekly or monthly or quarterly basis because it's very impressive the way you're talking about it. Well, I appreciate that. Uh, probably our implementation is not quite as impressive. I would say this is how I handle it. If I feel bad about any conversation happening or anything that happened, and when I say I feel bad, I just feel like, man, that doesn't feel right to me. We deal with it immediately. That's one reason we had a call today. We had a little snafu going on within the team. I could feel a couple of people on the team's feelings were hurt. We had to deal with that immediately. Don't let it sit. Don't let it fester. To me, that's the most valuable thing that I try to really do. I wouldn't say we get together quarterly or, you know, we just don't get together a lot. It's just living within the Peterson's ecosystem. You kind of either get on this ship or you don't last. And that doesn't mean you can't be successful. It just means you're not a good fit for the Peterson's team. And that's how we just do that. There's a guy that I love working with and ended up with another job, but he challenged me in a million ways because he and I were needing to have that conversation pretty often. And then all of a sudden I got more comfortable with that conversation. He got more comfortable with me. That's very cool. We have a lot of people who listen to this that are in the hospitality space, but also a lot of entrepreneurs and, and up-and-coming entrepreneurs. And one area that I, I'm really fascinated in and I heard you touch on and I'd like to just explore a little bit more with you is sales. Because I think sales is so important, maybe the most important thing in any business because without sales, you don't have a business. And this goes for restaurants and hotels as well. But sales is a lot of times, I think, misunderstood. And I would love to hear your thoughts about it. And just as a jumping off point, I'm of the belief that the best sales are when you listen first and when you can find a way to solve a problem and bring value. That's kind of the approach that I drum into my team. But I would love to hear your thoughts about sales and how you use the sales force at Peterson's to achieve your objective. I mean, I don't even know if I could say it any better than that. In my estimation, you're absolutely right. Now, is it that easy? No. I like to talk. I want to tell my story. I want everybody to know how great Peterson's is. Every single customer I ever get in front of, I talk too much. And it's a constant battle for me. And then I also always like to kind of clarify, I am a salesman. So of course, I'm going to think sales are the most important. But I think if you go really talk to the CFO, talk to the chief marketing person, talk to the production team, they will all tell you in some way or another that the business doesn't live without sales. If you just look close enough, no business happens without sales. Now, some sales require a little more finesse, I would say. Some sales are such a good product, such a good solution to the market. It doesn't really even take much sales. You just have to get people to know it's there. But I just agree with you totally. Sales is very important. 
Listening is huge. You can even tell on this podcast I talk too much. <laughs> no, not at all. I mean, you're the guest, and I like to let people talk. And just what you said, I agree. What I try to achieve here is I try to make everyone in the organization recognize that they're part of the sales team. Because the truth is, any interaction with a customer, whether it's with the truck drivers who are super important, accounts receivables, accounts payable, all of that is going to reinforce the relationship because the business that we're in, and you in as well, Neil, is there are repeat customers, there's multiple line items. So everything that everyone does in this organization can reinforce and enhance the relationship that we have with the customer and enhance how they view us. And so I try to get everyone here to think in that mindset. And I think if you look at really successful restaurants, the wait staff is unbelievable. The host that seats you, the chef will come out and speak to people, the coat check person. So it's just, maybe it's even a simpler way just to say sales is about focusing on the other person first throughout the whole thing. Absolutely. And I would probably say I have three daughters and I fully intend to require them to be a piece of the wait staff in a restaurant for a year's time. I mean, I would almost start giving people a little bit of a leg up in a hiring process if they've ever been a waiter or a waitress. That just builds ingrains a customer service mentality, a sales mentality into a person. You can't get any other way. I got it as a bar back in a bar. I mean, I could just watch these bartenders sell and i learned so much from that and i also learned how to deal with unhappy customers there's a real part to that if you do that well you can turn those unhappy customers into bigger business it's absolutely right even though you never want it to happen it's something that I, I don't like when it happens, but I almost always, whenever possible, I like to either take those calls or at least be involved in them because you're absolutely right. If you can take a situation where someone's had a negative experience and really listen to them and address it and communicate in a manner where they feel heard and respected and are happy with the results, you'll probably have a customer for life. And I think it's something that a lot of people either avoid or don't handle well because they either get defensive or they don't want to have a negative exchange. It goes back to what you were saying to an extent also, a little bit of ego, a little bit of fear. But I've learned if you just let people say their piece, really listen to them, don't get defensive, hear it from their perspective, and then give them a solution and take responsibility, they're more loyal customers than they were before the negative incident. Humans are funny. They'll forgive. They really will. Humans will forgive any. Genuine, honest acceptance of, I hurt you, and I didn't mean to. I've not ran into a single scenario in which they would have. I completely agree. Neil, I, I've so enjoyed this conversation, and I think that we went off in some terrific directions, which I think are going to be of great value for everyone that's listened to it. And I just want to remind the audience again, you'd mentioned it, I mentioned it, but I really want to emphasize it. You have a phenomenal podcast called The Cowboy Perspective. And I've listened to a few episodes and I've learned from you as a podcaster and I've really enjoyed the guests that you've had. So I would encourage our audience, if you enjoy this content, to check out The Cowboy Perspective. You can also follow Neil on Instagram at The Cowboy Perspective. You can follow Peterson at Peterson's Farms on Instagram. And Neil, thank you so much. I know you took this on short notice, but with everything going on in the world, I felt that this interview was going to be very timely now. And, and now I'm glad that we made it happen. Absolutely. And if we've got five minutes left, I want to come back to that macro please, kind of please. economic scenario that's playing out. Because I feel like some of your listeners are wondering, why am I getting shorted product? Or 
it's wow we're just now ramping up and now it's slowing down because i can't stay in stock and that kind of thing and i can speak from bacon sausage etc when the pandemic hit that really was a boon for our business. We we just were getting orders three and four and five times bigger than we'd ever seen because consumers were going to retail. They just couldn't go out to the restaurants anymore. So now then that pent up demand is flowing back to the restaurants and all of these production facilities, the vendors, you know, service providers are trying to pivot, I don't necessarily like the word, but the move back to that reality, you know, kind of get back to where the market is needing the service or the product. So in that sense, Neil, do you feel, because one of the subjects, as we record this interview, one of the topics in the financial press and other things is inflation. And this has been a much discussed topic for a while. And many people think it's transitory. I have my own views, but I think at least some of what's occurring, maybe not from a price standpoint, maybe from a price standpoint, but certainly from a supply chain disruption is a reflection of what you've described and there's other dynamics that are at play that are causing these disruptions because when you turn an economy off and then you turn it on, it's going to be disruptive. But would you agree that there's a transitory component to this and that over time things will smooth out and many of these disruptions are going to be reduced dramatically, if not eliminated? I don't know if I would agree with that. I feel like there's just something in the economy out there. I can't put my finger on it, but it feels like all of America is too affluent. <laughs> and, and that's not, it's probably sad to say, but to me, it feels that way. One illustration is my kids play on a softball team. And when I played baseball as a little kid, we wore Wrangler blue jeans, tennis shoes, and we all shared one bat. Now, every kid that plays has two bats, a backpack full of gear, the most fancy. And this is just in a little town of Comanche you know, cleats and every little piece of the uniform so they look the part. That's just one generation difference. And I'm not sure all of that stuff is necessary for the kid to go enjoy and learn, right? So I just feel like there's so much affluence in the economy that there is going to have to be a correction. Now, I really hope I'm wrong, but if I'm being honest, that's what my gut tells me. Very interesting. And you know, it's funny, just as a just a quick funny aside, I read a book, I finished a book, it was two weeks ago, a terrific book by Peter Cousins called The Earth is Weeping, which was about the war for the American West. And after reading it, I happened to be on this online store, and no joke, I have a mug that I bought just two weeks ago that says on it, Comanche, Texas, which is really kind of cool, because that's where you've just informed me you live, so that's kind of Oh, wow, yeah, that is cool. I wish I had uh, told you that before. When I get home, I'm going to take a pic and I'll text it to you so you can see it. That's very cool. As far as your thoughts on the economy, look, your guess is as good as mine. I think I think maybe, you know, because I can think back to those times as well, you know, where it seems like people got by with less and I could relate to that too. And I guess everyone looks back on their own past. But no matter where we go economically as a society, I hope we can continue to evolve in a way where we really appreciate the joys of being alive and the joys of interacting with each other and the ability to just enjoy the simple things in life. I think it's important that no matter how much affluence there is, we don't get too materialistic because I was talking to one of my kids that was complaining about something and that's normal. They're a kid. I said, 
hey, I'm just so darn grateful. Do you remember where we were a year and two months ago and now we can go out and grab a coffee at Starbucks and you got a basketball game? I mean, let's just enjoy it and not get caught up in the pettiness, you know? Absolutely. Find that gratitude. And I'm sure there's some listeners out there that are going to be like, well, I don't know about this affluence you're talking about, Neil. That's why I kind of wanted to clarify. Look, I can only have my own opinion. I'm a middle-class raised rancher in a small town, Texas. Look, I don't know what inner city New York's like. I don't even want to pretend like I do because I just don't. And I would love to have those conversations with people so I could at least get a pulse on it. And you're one of those people that can help me get there. Oh, the other thing is I could be very wrong because our businesses in America are so resilient. Like these bacon plants, when the food service business just dropped to zero because of the pandemic, guess what? They started making retail bacon so fast. I mean, in about three weeks, they were up making retail bacon. So now they kind of switched their business model real quick to adjust. Now everybody's having to go back to the old business model or some kind of hybrid of what it was prior pandemic. I've heard a lot of people say this pandemic just sped our world up 10x or something like that to AI and all these different things. And I tend to think they're pretty right about that. I do too. I mean, I know that there's a lot of changes that we made at Woolco as a result of the pandemic. And it turns out that they forced us to do certain things and the changes that we had to make in the adaptations and the resiliency, I think has made us a better company. And more important than that, I think it's put us in a position where we're offering better service and better value to our customers. And you're right, it's a byproduct of that resiliency. You know, you never know what you're capable of until you have to. And I think that's really, that's a point well taken. Well, I could talk all day, but I know you did this on short notice and I don't want to take up your whole day. So I will just say again, Neil, thank you. I, I always enjoy speaking with you and I've I've really enjoyed this conversation very much and I'm glad you took the time to have it with me. You're absolutely welcome. Anybody listening, if you have any questions just about the meat industry, protein, reach out. Hit me up on the Cowboy Perspective on Instagram. Peterson's, those questions will get to me too. The funny thing is I'm on Peterson's social. So I see those questions and those comments, and my wife is a part of it. So if you just have anything, you just want to pick my brain, we'd love to have that conversation, or I can get you to even a better expert within our company to answer any questions you might have. Steve, thank you so much for the platform. Everybody, thank you so much for a little bit of attention you gave me. I do appreciate it. Yeah, and I would encourage people listening to take Neil up on that offer because I think the lessons that you've shared with us in your philosophy translate into any business. So for those of you, wherever you are in the journey, you know, reach out to him on anything because I know Neil is very giving with his time and, and his views are absolutely worth listening to. So Neil, have an awesome day, man. And thank you again for doing this. Totally welcome, Steve. I appreciate you. Thank you for listening to The Profitable Table, fed by Woolco Foods. Please be sure to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. And to learn more about Woolco Foods or Stephen Toberoff, please visit us at woolcofoods.net.